Today we're beginning a sermon series called Christmas Through Their Eyes. And this series is looking at the events surrounding Jesus' birth from the perspective of those who actually experienced them. Here in the 21st century, we have the advantage of divinely inspired hindsight. Especially through the Bible, we can look back on what happened with clarity. But for them, back then, they were living it in real time. They didn't know what to expect next. I mean, here in the 21st century, we take so many things about the Christmas story for granted because we've heard them so often. But for them, as they were experiencing it in real life, they were oftentimes surprised or even shocked by what God was doing. Today, we're looking at Christmas through the eyes of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And so I invite you to to turn in your Bibles, if you're following along in Bibles, to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1. Now, you may be thinking in your minds, Zechariah... And Elizabeth. Who, who are they? I mean, I thought Christmas was about Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Uh, what do Zechariah and Elizabeth have to do with Christmas? Well, Zechariah and Elizabeth and their son John actually play a very significant role in the story of Jesus and especially of his birth. I did some math in order to quantify the role that Zechariah, Elizabeth, and their son John played in the birth narratives of Jesus. And so I did some math. So I looked at uh, how the birth narratives of Jesus begin in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. And they basically conclude in chapter 2, verse 20, when the shepherds went back to their fields after visiting baby Jesus. And between Luke 1, 5 and 2, 20 are 107 verses. So the birth narrative of Jesus is about 107 verses. Now, Zechariah, Elizabeth, and their son John appear or are referenced in 59 of those 107 verses. So what that means is that Zechariah, Elizabeth, and their son John appear in 55% of the birth narrative of Jesus. That is a big deal, isn't it? And so so we have to understand that Zechariah, Elizabeth, and and John play a big role in the birth story of Jesus. Even though in in your nativity scene at home, you probably do not have figurines of Zechariah and Elizabeth. You probably do not have a second cradle for baby John. But they still play a major role in the birth story of Jesus. So I want to pick up the story at the beginning. Luke chapter 1, picking up in verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So we see here that Zechariah and Elizabeth had lived faithful lives that were overshadowed by the disappointment of childlessness. They had been faithful to God, but they were disappointed by by being childless throughout their lives. And it is a heart-wrenching thing to want children, but not be able to have children. It's a heart-wrenching thing, full of sorrow and ache, when you have a couple who wants children, who looks around and sees others around them with their children, and as they think about their future without children, that is a hard thing. I think it's hard to really imagine how heart-wrenching infertility or barrenness can be if you have not experienced it. But that's what Elizabeth and Zechariah were experiencing. Look at, looking at that through the eyes of the first century Jewish culture, the common perspective then was that if a couple does not have children, 
they are under God's curse in some manner. If you had children, you were blessed by God. But if you didn't have God's children, you must have something, done something wrong to have him turn away from you. And so you think about Elizabeth, lying awake in bed at night, just praying, God, I want a child. What, what have I done wrong? Why can't I just have a child? I mean, it would be so heart-wrenching. And on top of that, you think about the fact that Zechariah was a priest. I think that would have made issues even worse for them. Because you can imagine the gossip and the whispering behind their backs. Oh, wow, can you believe a priest and his wife, they can't find any favor from God. But we do know from Scripture in verse 6 that they were living righteous lives. It says Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly and all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And so it's clear then that their infertility is not the result of God's judgment for sin in their lives. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. We don't know for sure, but probably both of them were at least 60 years old by that point. And so they had lived faithful lives that were overshadowed by the disappointment of childlessness. But God intervened. Look with me to verse 8. Now, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So let me give you some cultural background of what's happening here. In the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, it was common that twice a day, a priest would go into a section of the temple known as the holy place and burn incense. This was a special responsibility. There were 18,000 priests in Israel. And so you can imagine, if it was only done twice per day for 18,000 priests, if you were a priest, your opportunity to go in and do that special thing wouldn't come around very often. Burning incense like that was literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I mean, you think, for instance, of a Major League Baseball pitcher starting Game 7 of World Series. Or you think about uh, a gymnast being able to perform in the Olympics. It is of that magnitude. This would be the pinnacle of Zechariah's career as a priest. And God chose that moment to intervene in his life. And so let's, let's pick up again verse 11. It says, there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. A few months ago, I was doing some recording in our church lobby for an online worship service. And I was really focused in. I was kind of unaware of my surrounding. I was, I was just focused in on the camera and what I was supposed to be saying. And I didn't realize that Pastor Greg had come in a side door pretty close to me in the lobby. And he recognized I was focused in. He didn't want to distract me or disturb me or surprise me. And so when I was done saying my lines, he just gently said my name, not wanting to surprise me. But it did. I, ran, I almost jumped out of my skin. Um, it's hilarious because we have it on video. The camera was still rolling even though I was done with my lines. And you can see in that recording that my head jerked to the side. I jumped up out of my seat. I, I almost hugged the pillar that was next to me. I was so scared. 
And that's what it's like. I mean, you know what it's like when you're scared to that degree. I mean, you just have this involuntary, momentary, uh, just shock of electricity that just courses through your body. And you almost lose control of anything you do or say in that moment of fear. And that is what Zechariah would have been experiencing. He is there in that holy place by himself, so he thinks, concentrating on the sacrifice of incense. As he's focused there, concentrating, he realizes there's a presence there with him. He looks up, and there is an angel. And every single time, not every single time, almost every time in the Bible that you see an angel appearing to, human, to a human, the human is instantly terrified. And that is the response of Zechariah as well. He sees that angel, he is terrified, not just because of the sudden appearance that he wasn't expecting, but also just because he, it's an angel, which is terrifying. But the angel said to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth would bear a special son named John. Pick up with me in verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your, answer, or your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." And so the son John, it says, will be great before the Lord, that he will be set apart for a special purpose for God. And the way this angel's talking, it's clear that John will be a prophet. That's what it means when it says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. That's what it means when it says that he will minister in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Elijah was the most beloved prophet in Israel's history. Now John will be like Elijah. And this is absolutely remarkable. Because historically speaking, for 400 years before this happened, there had been no prophets in Israel. It felt like God was silent, but no longer. John would be a forerunner of the Messiah. Verses 16 and 17 say that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So in delivering this message to, to Zechariah, the angel is paraphrasing from the prophet Malachi. Malachi was the last prophet recorded in the Hebrew Scriptures. He was some 400 years earlier, though. But the angel is paraphrasing from Malachi about the coming of the Messiah. Malachi 3.1, God said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. In Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, these are the last verses in the Old Testament. God says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Now, Zechariah, being a priest, he was steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament. And so in his mind, he would have connected the dots between what the angel is saying and what 
his son will be. From the prophet Malachi, his son John will be a forerunner for the Messiah. And to Zechariah, this all sounds too good to be true. And in fact, Zechariah does not believe God, or does not believe the angel. Zechariah didn't believe. In verses 18 through 25, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service had ended, he went to his home. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now, in the following months, Mary's pregnancy, I mean, her her child inside of her grew. And we also see from Luke chapter 1 that her relative, Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to visit her. They were both pregnant at the same time. Elizabeth became pregnant first, and then Mary became pregnant with Jesus. They were relatives. Mary came to visit Elizabeth. It's recorded in the middle of Luke chapter 1. And then we see toward the end of Luke 1 that the promised child was born. And Zechariah worshipped God. He went from doubt to worship. Jump ahead with me to the verse 57. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And so this is a story within the birth narrative of Jesus, of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and their son, John. So you see, in Luke chapter 1, which, which in the midst of all this, uh, Gabriel has also appeared to Mary, which we'll see next week. In the midst of all this, uh, Mary has gone to visit Elizabeth, but their stories are intertwined, as will be the ministries of John and Jesus, uh, as we'll look at here in a few minutes. But let me take a deeper look with you all into this idea of looking through their eyes at what was taking place here. So through their eyes, God turned despair and disgrace into hope and joy. In verse 25, Elizabeth had said, The Lord has taken away my reproach among people. This could also be translated, The Lord has taken away my disgrace. You know, up to that point, for decades, people around them had looked down upon them, perhaps gossiping behind their back. But now their disgrace is gone. That despair and disgrace has been been turned into hope and joy. 
But they knew that the birth of John pointed to something so much bigger than just their personal fulfillment or God blessing them personally. They knew that God was pointing through John to a much greater, bigger, broader disgrace that he's going to remove from people and turn into hope and into joy. We know this in part not only because of what we can see through divine hindsight of what happened later on in John's life, but Zechariah even knew it back then, right when John was born. In the last part of Luke 1, Zechariah sings a song of praise to God, and then he addresses his baby son, John. Verses 77 through 79 of Luke 1, he says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. These are some remarkable words Zechariah is, is speaking. He's speaking them filled by the Holy Spirit. He's prophesying. But what he's doing is pointing to the gospel. Gospel is a word that means good news, and he's pointing to the fact that God is going to provide good news that's going to turn despair and desperation into hope and joy. Now, Zechariah knows it's going to come through some manner in which God's going to work. He doesn't know exactly how it's going to take place. Zechariah does not know yet that Jesus is going to die and be resurrected to pay the death penalty we deserve for sins and thus gain the victory over sin and evil and death. He doesn't know exactly how it's all going to take place, but he does know that God is up to something big and he knows that his son John is going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. And so through the eyes of Zechariah and Elizabeth, God was turning despair and, and struggle into hope and joy, both personally for themselves as well as cosmically through Jesus. Now also through their eyes, the other point I want to make through their eyes is that even before their circumstances improved, God was still worthy of their devotion. You remember that description of Zechariah and Elizabeth back in chapter 1, verse 6, when it said that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord? You know, they'd faced a lot of disappointment up to that point in their lives. It's clear that they had been praying to God to give them a child. I mean, for, for ancient Jewish people, this would have been front and center of their desire in life, is to be able to bear children to carry on their legacy. And they had been deprived of that blessing. They would have been filled with disappointment. And I think about how I, I've encountered so many people through the years who have an attitude toward God that basically says, God, what have you done for me lately? They don't voice it that way. But that's the mentality that they have. They think, okay, God, if you will do this for me, then I will do this for you. They, they kind of barter with God. They try to bargain with God a little bit. But if people bring a mentality of that, uh, like that to God, of bargaining with God, of thinking, God, if you do this, I'll do this, of God, what have you done for me lately? That is a recipe for bitterness and grudges toward God. But it's clear that Zechariah and Elizabeth did not harbor grudges or bitterness toward God. No, because they were both righteous before God. They had been faithful to God. They served him faithfully. They followed him faithfully. They saw him as worthy of their devotion, even while their circumstances were still disappointing. They did not have the promise through most of, that, most of their life that things were going to get better for them. 
but they still saw God as worthy of their devotion. I think this is instructive for us as well. Because we all face challenges in our lives. We have things that, that we are just waiting for, things that are a struggle for, circumstances that we wish were different. And it may be tempting to think, you know, I will be more devoted to God when he changes that circumstance. But Zechariah and Elizabeth are a great model to us that God is always good and he is worthy of our devotion even when our circumstances are struggling. Now, we're looking at Christmas through their eyes primarily, but let's, through the divine, divinely inspired hindsight we gain through Scripture, let's just look at one more point through our eyes as we look back on Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John. Through our eyes, John highlights repentance as a way of preparing ourselves for God's work. If you zoom ahead in John's life, about 30 years, we see that John became known as John the Baptist. And he went out into the wilderness of Israel preaching the importance of repentance, of, of confessing our sins, turning to God. And that was his way of preparing the way for Jesus the Messiah. John again, called John the Baptist. He gave people a baptism of repentance. And it shows the importance of repentance, of, of recognizing our sin, of confessing our sin, of taking our sin seriously and turning from our sin as a way of preparing ourselves for Jesus to come and work in our lives. I mean, really, Zechariah and Elizabeth, John's parents, embody that same mentality. Because we see that even though they did not know what was going to come next in their lives, they were still taking sin seriously. They were repenting of their sin, confessing their sin, living righteous lives before God. And that prepared them for the work God wanted to do in and through them. And so John, as well, is a reminder to us of the importance of taking our sin seriously if we are looking for God to work in us and through us. And, and I think about this Christmas season. This is a season known as Advent in the weeks leading up to Christmas. Advent is a time of preparation. I think an important question is how do we prepare ourselves to celebrate the birth of Jesus, to do justice to, the, to Jesus coming to this world in human form? It's not just through putting up Christmas trees. It's not even just through singing songs. I think this idea of repentance, of taking our sins seriously, is an important part of preparing ourselves to celebrate the birth of Christ. Because think about, why did Jesus come into this world? He came ultimately to take care of our sin problem. And so to prepare ourselves to celebrate Jesus, we need to take our sin seriously. And so I think of a number of things that we need to be praying that God would reveal to us. I think we need to be praying, God, will you please reveal to me any sin that's still inside of me that I need to do business with, that I need to confess and repent of. Maybe it's praying, God, what are the idols that I'm still clinging to for identity, significance, and security more than I'm clinging to you? God, is there bitterness or grudges or unreconciled relationships that are still a part of my life that I need to, to address? Is there forgiveness that I need to give someone? Is there a secret sin that I'm hiding that I need to bring out into the light with God and perhaps with others? Are there ways just where I'm not taking God seriously enough? These are valuable things to, to search our hearts with, to examine, is there sin? What sin? We all have sin. What sin do we have that we need to take seriously and confess and repent of? Because I think that's an important part of preparing ourselves for Christmas, recognizing our sin. But we also have the promise with this divinely inspired hindsight from the Bible to know from 1 John 1, 9, that if anyone confesses their sin, God is faithful and just 
to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. That is the opportunity we have because of Jesus, that when you come to him by faith and repentance, that we can be cleansed. And that's what John was pointing to. That's what Jesus accomplished. And today we're going to have an opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I recognize that sometimes the Lord's Supper, it seems a little incongruous, incongruent with Christmas, because Christmas is about Jesus' birth. The Lord's Supper is more like Good Friday and Easter. But it's still very relevant at a time like this to prepare our hearts to celebrate Jesus. Because remember, Jesus came to pay for sins. Uh, when John the Baptist first saw Jesus coming, John was out there with crowds around him. John said of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew that Jesus came to deal with sin. And in the Lord's Supper, we remember the price that Jesus paid for our sin. And so we're going to get an opportunity this morning to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're trusting in Christ to reconcile you with God, to pay the penalty for your sin rather than thinking you can do it yourself, you're welcome to join with us this morning. If you don't yet have one of these communion kits, they're available right by the main entrance into the sanctuary back there. Feel free to get one. We're going to take a, a moment right now just to talk with God and to thank God uh, for what he did through Jesus, perhaps to confess any unconfessed sin to God, to prepare our hearts for celebrating the Lord's Supper. So let's just take a minute right now just to personally talk with God and thank him for Jesus and confess any sin that we need. remember the truth of the gospel. If anyone confesses their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. This is what Jesus enabled for us through his death and through his resurrection. The bread that we're about to partake of symbolizes Christ's body that was broken for us on the cross. The cup represents Christ's blood that was shed for us. Now, with these kits, there are two flaps on there, two tabs. Uh, the top tab, the clear one, releases the bread. So you can open that up uh, right now. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. the other tab, the pinkish-purplish tab that opens up the juice. We see that in the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. And we have that promise that just like Jesus came once 2,000 years ago, he will come again one day. And when he comes again, he will come as the victorious king, the king who will set everything right, that take, who will take the brokenness of this world and make it new, make it fresh, make it pure, make it whole. That is something that we look forward to. And we have confidence in his coming again because we can look back with absolute certainty that he came once and he said he will come again. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you so love the world that you sent your one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, help us to, to cling to that truth even in the midst of a broken and challenging world, even those times we're struggling with our own sin. Lord, help us to remember the truth of your love and grace through Jesus. Lord, help us to, to live in the light, to bring our sin out into the light, to confess it, and then to receive the grace and forgiveness that you have to give us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you so loved us that you came to die for us. We thank you for the witness, the testimony of Zechariah and Elizabeth and John, how they, they served as such models, people of faith. Lord, we thank you most of all, though, for yourself. You died for us. We pray these things with gratitude in your name. Amen. I need to stand as we close our service in song.